Hello, it's 2021. Vaccines are here, travel is back in a big way, and so are we. Welcome to season three of The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about transformative travel experiences brought to you by Full Time Travel and hosted by me, Esme Benjamin. In a few weeks, I will be leaving New York City and heading out on a very quintessential USA road trip with my husband and our dog. The plan is to blend work with national park adventures, cowboy towns, and weird roadside attractions. And at the moment, there is no set return date, which I kind of love. I'm really excited to be recording season three from some cool locations around the country, but still be bringing you the same amazing guests and inspiring travel stories. Stories that we hope will inspire your next life-affirming trip. This week, we're kicking things off with Jackie Hill Murphy. Jackie doesn't travel the way most of us do. In 2007, she quit her job as a teacher in Bristol, England, to recreate the journey of Isabella Godin, the first European woman to traverse the Amazon in 1769. That trip took her from Ecuador to Peru in a dugout canoe, and it will be the first of many expeditions Jackie took following in the footsteps of early female explorers. Jackie has recorded her experiences and observations in three books, Adventuresses, The Extraordinary Life of Kate Marsden, and The Life and Travels of Isabella Bird. On this episode, we chat about the intentions of these female explorers and how they differed from the male explorers of that era, the next bucket list journey on Jackie's list, the struggles of being a vegetarian in a very remote area, and the empowering belief that adventures are ours for the taking, regardless of age. Welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. I'm very excited to speak with you. So the first thing I want to ask you about is this idea of being an explorer in the modern world. It's probably the best LinkedIn title one could ever imagine. (laughs) So what does it mean to be an explorer in 2021? It's not really possible to be an explorer because I don't think there's any unexplored lands left. And, and sadly, with the onset of 5G, there won't be anywhere left where we can't be communicated to anymore, which I find that rather sad. Mm. But in terms of going back and recreating journeys and exploring the differences between what it was like for the first women explorers, which is what I do, and present, well, then I am an explorer. And there are still places that you can go to. I mean, there are there are obviously still some tracks and woods somewhere in the world that you you could say, well, no one's ever been. I mean, I've been in the Yanganetas in the in the Ecuadorian Andes, and we've gone off and gone up a mountain, and we've stood there. And we said, I doubt if any man has ever stood here before because it's too remote. Nobody could have got here. But I I think that there is no actual places that are unexplored anymore. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think, I mean, you said you're not very techie. <laughs> but, and I don't know how much social media you have or how active you are on those channels. But obviously, that's a huge way that people find out about places now. And it definitely does yes. feel like, you know, with geotagging, that even the places that felt fairly unknown or off the beaten path years ago now have become over touristy and, yes. and extremely popular. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, and I feel like that's kind of pushing us to seek further, like to go further and further afield in some ways, but it does seem like your experiences have been 
yeah, like very, very rare and just fascinating. But extreme. also like, yeah, extreme, exactly. <laughs> yes. But be- before we get to talking about them, I do want to go back a little while um, and talk about the fact that you weren't always an explorer and an, an author and a speaker. You were initially a teacher. I was a teacher. I was a school teacher, a secondary school teacher, yes. <laughs> yes. And, and teaching, I mean, my friends who are teachers they left the profession eventually because it has a very high burnout rate. It's very, you know, it's a very stressful environment. What was your experience of teaching like? Very similar. Yes, burnout. And you, you get into a groove and you keep, you keep doing it because you love the children. But actually, you know, you hate your work. You do, it for, you do it for the young people because they're the future, aren't they? And they're inspirational. In my mind, it feels like it would be a very satisfying job because you feel like you're making a difference. But did it feel like that to you or not always? I, I found it too much of a struggle to make a difference. I wasn't a career teacher. I was always in the wrong place. I wanted to be doing something else. Mm. And you were teaching English and drama. I fully expected you to be a history teacher. <laughs> but, so how did you become <laughs> interested in these early female explorers and, and get involved in all of that? Doing uh, a master's degree and finding the story in the old library of the Royal Geographical Society about the first woman down the Amazon and being completely taken back by that story. And it was an unknown story. And, and I was just one account of Isabella go down, go down the Amazon. And then I carried that with me, the burning urge to go back and, and, and just travel the first part of that journey. And eventually I did it. But it, time had to be right. I had to wait for my son to leave school and go to university before I could do that. And then when it did happen, he said to me, Mum, it's me who's meant to be having the gap year and not you. (laughs) (laughs) So then I went off and left him because I thought, well, okay, I've I've done my bit. He's like a lovely human being and and it's time for me to go and spread my wings. (laughs) Yeah, he's out in the world now. (laughs) Yeah, so that story was was so fascinating to me. Yeah, tell us a bit more about Isabella Godin. Is that how you tell her? Isabella Godandela Odinet, yes. Okay. She was the wife of a French scientist in the earth measuring expedition of the, of the 1750s and 60s in Ecuador. And they were trying to ascertain whether the world was, was round, as Darwin had said, by going to the equator and using triangulation exercises. So she married one of them, John Godin. And they were nicely, happily settled in in Riobamba, in the Andes. And then he said, we must go back to France, but I want to go back to France via the Amazon because the journey we got here, which was via Panama, was so awful for them. And it was just a very, very difficult journey to come down in, in 1760s from northern South America into Ecuador. So the La Condamine set off and he's the first known European ever to travel down the Amazon River. And and her husband, John Godin, said, right, okay, I want to do the same. I'll come back and get you. But of course, it took a year for him to do that journey. And mm. he couldn't come back because the Amazon <laughs> flows one way and you didn't have in in 1760s did not have, obviously have any motors or you know offboard motors to make it possible. So she didn't hear from him again. For 21 years there was no post wow. there was no way of knowing in the meantime all her children died they had four children they all died of yellow fever and things like that so she had nothing to lose so finally this is a very long story and I 
would like your listeners to to check out the story on on Google to, to fill the gaps because it is totally fascinating. I can't tell you the whole story now, but basically, he wrote letters asking for to, to the king of of Portugal to come and send a a galliot to to row up the Amazon and collect his wife. And he wrote letters and he waited and he waited and waited in Cayenne. And finally, one actually arrived. But by the time it did arrive, he was slightly affected by madness. And so he didn't get on the galliot and go with it up the Amazon. It waited for him for a year. And then he said, we can't wait any longer. And they went off without him. Only rumour got uh, Isabella Godin that there was this ship waiting at Tabatinga, which was they couldn't go any further than Tabatinga in the Amazon because they could have gone into uh, Spanish territory and they couldn't do that. They have to be very mindful of not being able to upset people. So she sent a freed slave who was very loyal to her to have to check it out. First time he came back because he was sent back. Second time he went to check out if there really was a ship waiting for her. It took him two years to get there and back. It's a 1,500-mile journey from where she was in Riobamba to, to Tabatinga on the border of Brazil and Peru. And so then she said, right, I'm going to go. I've got nothing to lose. So she set off with a massive party. She was a very well-to-do lady. She had mountain Indians take her over the Andes in Peru, which is now Ecuador, and waiting at Canelos, which is on the River Bobanaza, which is, leads to a tributaries down to the Amazon, was meant to be her whole retinue of forest Indians who had already to take her. So the trouble is that the advance party, which was her father, infected them all with smallpox on the way. This is probably the first time the Kichwa Indians were ever, were, were ever contacted and they infected them. Oh, no. So by the time she arrived there, they were, there was nobody there and there was no boats and the villages were burning. And they tried to make their own way and they began to die one by one. The only survivor out of a party of 20 was Isabella, who plunged into the forest and emerged alive after six weeks and was rescued. Finally got to the ship that was waiting, which was about to leave because they thought she was dead as well. And she travelled back down the Amazon. It took like 10 months to row down there. Got to, saw her husband again after 21 years. And after, after recovering for a few years, they made their way back to France. There are lots of other things that happened along the way, but that's the basic story. And I was so fascinated. I wanted to do that first bit as far as Nuevo Andoas, just across the Peruvian border from Ando, uh, Ecuador to see where she was taken to recover. And I did that. I did that um, a few years ago. And you talk about a journey that changes you. It certainly did change me. We we did the mountain part. We we traveled there. We we had a very good look at everywhere she would have had to have gone and we were amazed at the conditions. She would have had to walk through all the waterfalls, got to Canalos, and there was our 40-foot canoe waiting for us, where exactly the spot where hers should have been waiting for her. We had a 40-foot dugout canoe. And I was kind of gun ho couldn't wait to get going. I had a few members in my party who were a bit worried about the rapidity of the, of the river. I was saying, you know, <laughs> this is fantastic. Go for it, you know. And um, we got to a village called um, Sariaku, which was part of her journey as well. Now, when we carried on down the Bobanaza, which is this little tiny river that flows into the Pastaza, which flows into the, into the Maranon and then the Amazon, 
you that something very interesting happened to me you know you have day after day of just staring at the side of the jungle you know looking at this the brown water in this narrow river and what happened to me was like there was a bell going off in my head every 40 minutes i couldn't work out what was going on what was happening what was this thing happening to me and i realized that I was meant to be back at work at school. And that was the school bell ringing for the lessons every 40 minutes. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> well, I can't like, when I hear the story of Isabella's journey, it's incredible to me. But to me, it's like, okay, that sounds, that sounds hard. What was it about her story that made you think, I want to recreate this? It just never went away. Like, it just like burnt like a fire inside me. I thought, I really want to go see, wh- see where she lived and, and look at what her life was like. And then what she left behind and then how she plunged into the jungle. I find totally and utterly fascinating. I mean, the map's there all the time. As I said, I I wrote a a screenplay for my master's degree on it. And I I had all this knowledge and I just had all this knowledge in my head about her. And I was like, what was it like? How did she feel? How did she cope? What were her survival skills? And of course, the reason they died was because they had no survival skills. They didn't know how Mm. to use a machete. They couldn't swim. They couldn't build rafts. They didn't know how to forage for food. And while I was in Sariaku, you know, the, the shaman of the village took me out and showed me all the, the plants in the, in the forest that she could have eaten mm. to survive and, and how all of them could have survived. And, and the fact that you know, her brothers died and her nephew died and her lady's maids died and they all died, they were meant to be die of disease. But I met a historian in Kakabamba who said, actually, it was the Jivaro Indians that attacked them. But we don't know that. It's either Jivaro and Indians attack them and hack them to pieces or else they just died of disease. We don't know. But, but yeah, absolutely fascinating. I, I, I just wanted to get down there and I wanted to get into the tribal villages and talk to the people and see what they were like. Have you always been so adventurous? <laughs> I suppose I have, yes. In 88, <laughs> I crossed Africa in a Land Rover and drove to Timbuktu, which is now completely off limits. And, and I was just, you know, it, I, I, I guess the spirit of wanderlust entered my soul, didn't it? <laughs> At that age, when you, when you just, when you, when you just want to go on and explore places. Yeah. And to go to Timbuktu in 1988 was yeah. such a joy because you cannot do that anymore. You certainly can't drive to Timbuktu anymore. It's impossible because the jihadi terrorists have moved in. So that's quite an honour to have done that. So yes, I, I've, I've always been a bit intrepid like that. You have to think about the people you leave behind because it always really upset my mother. So mm. I had to wait actually really until my mother passed on. She was quite elderly before I did the length of the Amazon River. Because on that first journey, I just went to the other side of the Peruvian border, which was 500 miles. But it, I just wanted to go the whole way. I just thought, what was it really like for, for Isabella to go down in 1769? This is to to do that journey. Pretty much most of it is an unprotected female, and, and you think about you've got arrows being fired at you, which are probably poison arrows coming at the, out of the jungle on either side. You have to stay in the middle. You've got every kind of insect and worst fish. Anaconda, <laughs> piranha, everything known to mankind there. What was it like for her? So I did finally go the whole length. The, um, that, and that, that, that's part of what changed me because in the meantime, I'd, I'd written books about it. Because after doing that first journey, I got back to England and 
people kept saying, tell us about it. It was fascinating. And I, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to write this down because everybody wants to know about it. And then I thought, I know what I want to do. I, wa I want to do this again. I want to find another another female Victorian explorer and I want to do her journey. So that's when I went on to Mary Kingsley up Mount Cameroon. And then I went to Ladakh in northern India and, and uh, retrod the footsteps of Isabella Bird across Ladakh. Then finally, I went across Siberia in the footsteps of Kate Marsden by public transport, which was a phenomenal experience. And then I became a speaker. And, and then now it's even led to more things. So, you know, we can change our lives by very small things, can't we? And there's this mm -hmm. journey that changed my life. I think it's incredible that you were 50 years old when you first set out on this, this big Amazon trip. I'm in my mid-30s now, and I think the thing that scares me most about getting older is this feeling that, you know, our options dwindle, like there's less possibility. And some of that is down to the fact that we make, we inevitably make choices. Like we buy a home, we have a mortgage, we have children, we have a family. And then some of it is more about maintaining the status quo and like what's expected of us. That's but, true. That's you know, true. When you left to do this, it's something completely challenging and unexpected. How did it feel to make that choice? Was it was it scary? Was it empowering? Oh, no, I just about danced there. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd been I'd been stuck in this. I mean, I'm I hate routine. I'd been stuck in this in this groove of, of being a school teacher and being very unhappy in this whole situation. And and it became possible. But I wasn't going to have anyone suffer because I was going to do this thing. I had to wait until the time was right. And you say about your, your options begin to cave in on you as you get older. Actually, for me, they opened up. I love that. They, they just totally did. I mean, I never in my life thought I'd write a book, and I've now written three. Those three books are now being considered as the research part of a PhD. So I may be going back to do a PhD in my 60s on women and the female gaze, which is really exciting and Incredible. I if I can inspire other people to do the same I, I would love to that that there is there is no age is a number mm -hmm. when you decided to make this journey you already said that your son said I'm supposed to be the one going on a gap here not you <laughs> but how did everyone else in your life respond how did when you handed in your notice you know how do people at work respond what do people say they thought I was joking <laughs> I said, no, I'm not joking. I said, will you be coming back? And I said, no, I've handed my notes. I'm not coming back. This is it. One way journey. You know, I'm not coming back. I've never taught since. You know, other things, other things have taken over. And, and that's where the other opportunities clicked in. Because then I became a public speaker. And especially after going to Russia, and I ended up going to speaking them in the British Embassy at Moscow and places like that. And it just began to be like a really interesting topic for people who love that fusion of history and geography. Mm. And then you said, yes, you know, funny that you were an English teacher, which is, yes, because if I do the PhD, I, I will be joining a history department, which again is just, you know, we can change our lives very easily. And all I had to do is to have that guts to go and do it and the courage to to face my fears, which is mostly snakes and stuff like that, you know. Well, that's something else I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> because, you know, I, I've done a fair amount of traveling in my life. And 
I spent a few nights in the jungle in Borneo when I was about 23, I think. And I remember being really excited. I don't think I gave it much thought. I was like, I'm in Borneo. This is what you do. You go into the jungle. You like sleep in really basic accommodations. It's going to be cool. We're going to see orangutans, all sorts of stuff. And I, I got there. The, it, the river had burst its banks. There were like snakes in the water. I went, I like paddled all the way to go and brush my teeth in the little sort of outhouse they had there. And there was a scorpion in the sink. It was just like, I, I was just in over my head. And I, I remembered like, okay, I'm a city gal. <laughs> I have to just admit, really? I don't do well in the jungle. But was there ever a moment when you felt that way? Or you know, how did you get through those moments where there was something a bit scary? Oh, yeah. I mean, I really don't, I don't like snakes. I'm not frightened. I just don't like snakes. I don't want to see one. <laughs> and, I, and I just thought to myself, am I going to let a snake stop me from doing what I want to do? That was my take on it. And in terms of tarantulas, they, yes, there was one in, the, in this village of Sariaku. They have a little funny little toilet for the odd visitor right in the middle of the village because, I mean, no, they don't use it. And uh, one of the friends I went, I went with decided to hold off her trip. And if she, had, if she hadn't held it off, she would have sat on it. I mean, basically, this tarantula. So you just have to be mindful all the time. But there's a funny thing about the piranhas because the piranha fish are, are they're just full of them, but they won't attack you oh. unless you've got an, an open wound on your leg. And one of the things I was amazed at was the beautiful children who live along the Amazon, you know, the, the children of, who live in the little villages who play in the water. Uh, and one, at one point on the Amazon, we had a fishing rod with us on the second journey. When this is in a place called Sucre, which is in a little tributary of the of the Amazon, and this little village Sucre was part of the Isabella Guerin story, so that's why we went there. It was so hot, we just we just flopped out under the shade. And one of my party who I take, because I I have to form parties to go with, because first of all I like to create opportunities, and secondly I have to spread the cost because I had to get a guide able to bring us down the Pastaza, which is really really dangerous and the peruvian embassy said don't go that way you know because no foreigners ever go there and we can't guarantee your safety so we had to bring in the only guide we knew that bring us who could identify danger along the way like he could identify hostile tribal people and so we needed so i have to take people with, with me but anyway you know it's nice it's nice to take people but sometimes sometimes that's <laughs> <laughs> another story so we were in Sucre and and this man from my party had a fishing rod with a you know with a, with a proper fishing rod and we were showing the children he was showing the children how to catch a fish with a fishing rod they'd never seen one before they were absolutely fascinated because normally they would just go out in nets every single time he he cast his rod within a minute he brought in a piranha fish you know a big one you know big red chested thing with big, you know teeth that would you savage you in two seconds but the children were in the water so they aren't frightened because they know they're safe because they haven't got open wound on their legs and I'd noticed when we visited a school on the way through the pastaza and I'd noticed some old lessons on the wall and it said number one lesson is you learn the dangers around you before you read and write you learn the dangers of the forest that's their education and I thought that was really really impressive that that's what they're educating. Mm. And then it said, help your family and do your duty in your village. And then it then it get then obviously, you know, they learn the 
but the rudimentaries of reading and writing and I, you know and I'm very happy about that but I thought that was interesting that their education started with safety yeah I mean that does make sense if they're living in that environment yes, it's not an easy exactly. one to survive in you know identify an electric eel and identify an anaconda and be able to identify you know all these mm. nasties yeah fascinating being an explorer is obviously very exciting but it's not glamorous <laughs> um you know there must have been times when you were soaked through and cold and being bitten by small creatures and feeling generally miserable how did you pull through through those moments and make yourself feel better about everything because you have to say to yourself i'm one of the few people in the world who've ever seen this Mm. You know, and I've come back with all the tropical diseases known, you know, I've, I've come back with the worst ones. I mean, it's just horrid, the tropical diseases. But but the memories and what you see are awesome. And then there's also, you say to yourself, well, don't complain because you'll probably never be here again. And I did fall in the Amazon and I, I had to endure like five hours before I could clean off. And, and it was, you know, and it was sandy and, and it was I was full of sand everywhere and, and, you know, Amazon and everything, all the wall inside me. I mean, it was just horrible. <laughs> but that's why you, you, you just you just get through because you just think this is a great honour to be here. And, and I've got this far and I can put up with this. And then you're always clean at the end, aren't you? You're not going to stay like that forever. No, and that is a good point. Like it's a privilege to to see these corners of the earth that those people haven't seen and will yes. never see. Yes. And, and a lot of things along the Amazon, you know, when, in my lectures, when I, I show people pictures and, I, and you could easily interpret village life as poverty. And it's not. It's it's very, very, very rich culture. And I, and I have this wonderful picture I show people of a bathroom made out of a lovely little trickling stream. You know, it's got a shower curtain and a bar of soap. And that is a fantastic representation of a culture you know that it's very rich and i and that's that's the other the thing i like to tell people you know that you know the the mm. it's it how other people lose their lives is it's just it's just as good as the way we leave our lives really absolutely and some of the other ladies that you have covered, the female explorers, yeah. you know, it seems like Isabella Godin, she wasn't, she didn't set out to be an explorer. No, she was she just trying to get from didn't. A to B to find her husband, she be reunited. She never wanted to be an explorer. <laughs> she never talked about it ever again. She told her husband what happened once because he had to record it for the Royal Academy of Science. She never talked about it again. But the other female explorers, you know, they were setting out with a certain mission in mind, with a yes. goal in mind. I yes. think. You know, in 2021, when we think back on the explorers of the past, we're thinking about Europeans, quote unquote, discovering new places and, yeah. you know, staking a claim on them. Normally there's violence against indigenous people involved, but also most of these explorers were men historically. So what were the intentions of these female explorers and how did they differ from the men? Oh, that's, that's a fabulous question because men tended to, I mean, although you know there were very very valid male explorers doing fantastic things and you know you've got the collectors like you know Wallace and you've got the the ones who were exploring you know continents wanting to know where the Niger River went and where the Nile River started things like that some were sadly wanting to expand our our empire 
But the women were exploring culture and they wrote about it so beautifully. And, and particularly Isabella Bird. And, and what, when I wrote her biography and I, I read her books about that very early trip she made to America in 1856, she recorded everything she saw. We know it's railways being built, the very first railway hotels, the things that she ate, the little wigwam settlements, you know, in the squaws and the, with the women with the babies on their backs. And, and sadly, you know, there is an element of racism comes in, mm. which is quite shocking. But on the other hand, she was absorbing what was going on around her. But, but she would be in a railway car with kind of a, a, a mixture of, of traveling uh, coterie of people from all over the world and they would be sinking y- Yankee Doodle or something. And, and <laughs> she didn't really didn't fit there, but she was recording it. She was recording what she saw. Anyone interested in the history of America should read those early books of Isabella Bird because you'll never get better detail from anyone else because her powers of observation are incredible. And, and again, in Hawaii, Malaysia, Japan, China, she records everything she saw. And it, it was a very, very uncomfortable time. And if you think it was uncomfortable for me to travel, oh, boy, it was awful for her. I mean, there was no infrastructure for tourists whatsoever. And, and I might have encountered the old cockroach and described them as the size of a small animal. But for her, that was a common occurrence wherever she went. She, she, and she was always damp and cold and hungry and she couldn't even get a cup of tea. <laughs> she would have loved to have had. You know, it was... I, when I wrote the biography, I constantly asked myself, why did she do it? Why did she put herself through such discomfort to record this, the, these cultures for the rest of the world? But you think in 1851 in England, we had the Great Exhibition, and then we had an interest in travel. But people knew they could never travel. So they relied on her books to tell mm. them about the world. And she almost felt that that was something she was good at and she wanted to keep doing it because she never stopped up until she died at 71. She was like an early a travel journalist. Just totally, yes. I mean, and, and yes. And look at Nellie Bly. I, I mean, you know, she New York and she travelled around the world and beat Jules Verne's 71. She did it in 71 days, didn't she? And she instigated investigative journalism, didn't she? I mean, Nellie Bly did. I mean, she was just amazing. They have been forgotten, and and myself and a few other people who are writing about early female explorers want to get their names back out there in the open again. Yeah, tell me about some of your books. So Adventuresses, that covered the stories of several of these female explorers. Yeah, that talked about that. Isabella Godin down the Amazon, Mary Kingsley and her trip up Mount Cameroon in 1894. And Mary Kingsley only travelled to... West Africa, and it was actually, you know, very dangerous. It was considered to be white man's grave because there were so many diseases at the time prevalent. And she climbed up the top of Mount Cameroon, and not even her guides and porters made it to the top. She did. She was so, so tough to do that. And we have a record of that. Her book of travels in West Africa. Then um, I, I, I think probably one of the people I feel most sorry for is Kate Marsden, who's who travelled across Siberia to document um, the state of lepers in eastern Siberia. And, and she, she, she did a great thing because she went there and because she, she was sort of like had acquired some status by the time she got to eastern Siberia. 
people took her very seriously. And so when she actually went into the area of the forest where all the, all the lepers were cast out, she had with her the, the, all the bigwigs from the area, like, you know, the chief medical officer and the, the bishop's aide and people like that. And so they were forced to face the fact that this is where they were treating their lepers. And, it, and after she went there, they were never treated that way again. And she orchestrated the opening of the first leper colony. And, but she was vilified by Victorian society. Um, people spread gossip about her and she wasn't able to clear her name. She didn't have the, the money and she died in poverty and in a mental asylum. And, and, that's, and so I wrote her biography because I felt I owed it to her because she was, you know, she even had an unmarked grave in North London that, that I found with another friend. And it, and it was so sad <laughs> that she'd lived that life. She'd done that awful journey across Siberia, which was incredible. She went through winter, you know, in, 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 in tarantasses, which are sledges with kind of wheels, you know, for the breaking up season of the ice and in sledges with horses and vodka soaked drivers of these horses and everything and she was always being pitched out into the snow and staying in the most worst places you know sleeping on the floor in a flea infested mud floored kind of hut with a sleeping on a, some sort of bear rug or something and um it was horrid for her. and she got back to london and she found that the papers had been spreading gossip about her and and she could never clear her name that's so sad. It was really, really sad. And, you know, in this day and age, I know the media have got a lot to answer for, but it's not quite as bad as that. Yeah. And, you know, you said that these women were there um, learning about the culture and, and bringing that yeah. information back and that knowledge back. Yeah. Was that as there's a reason why these women aren't as well known, right, as the male explorers? Do you think that that just wasn't as well respected as, you know, going and building the, the empire would be? Yeah, I think so. I think that they were just totally unapplauded. Even even though they gave lectures and they wrote books, the Royal Geographical Society didn't have its first female fellow and, and, until the turn of the century. And that was like a huge debate because no one ever wanted that to happen. They just didn't see that it was a place for a woman, <laughs> which is totally sad because women were exploring, but they were doing it in a slightly different way. Do you think that being a woman actually helped these female explorers in some way you said it was quite dangerous that they, they were coming in contact with people who you know indigenous people who maybe had never seen someone outside of their tribe before potentially do you think being a female maybe helps them to be present in some of these spaces and, and to make those relationships or it didn't make a difference i think it did make a difference in terms of their patience and their, their willingness to sit and, and, and listen and, and sit it out in situation and, and observe what was going on around them. But it wasn't always good because, for example, in China, Isabella Bird got called a foreign dog and she got chased away with sticks and stones. And they actually hit her on the head and caused her quite a lot of damage, caused her to be concussed at one point. She never turned back. Even though they see they'd never seen a foreigner, they were frightened, and they thought that a foreigner brought sort of bad vibes mm. with them, and 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 that's where it all came from. And at, at one point, nobody—it was a village in China where nobody would put her up, and she just had nowhere to go, and she just sat on a chair and just looked straight in front of her, with her feet in kind of melting snow, totally hungry, thirsty. I mean, just sat there and looked in front of her. And she said, I'm glad that I didn't have a man with me because he would have made a fuss and shouted at everybody. 
the fact that she just sat there quietly out in the road while everybody calls the rumpus around her saying she's not staying in this village. There's no way she's a foreign dog. And she just sat there quietly and in the end somebody opened up a stable or a or a pigsty or something and she just stayed it in there. took pity on her. Yeah. Yeah. And what about your own experiences? What are some highlights of something that really blew you away on your own trip? I think going to Timbuktu in 88 has still got to be something that had a huge impact on me. I, I, it resonated with me. Also, when I climbed up through Ladakh in the footsteps of Isabella Bird and I got to a little village called Digar, which was totally and utterly unchanged. Which country is this? This is, sorry, Ladakh, northern India. Okay. In the lower Himalayas, mm-hmm. uh, there was a little patch of flat ground where she she must have stayed. It was the only flat area where she could have put her tent up. And I put my tent up there and there was a little trickling brook going by. And 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 I looked around. I just thought there's nothing different here than when she was here. And that, that was quite an incredible moment that to realize mm-hmm. that nothing had changed. But of course, you know, it's globalization. We can't object to people wanting to keep progress at bay because it's not fair on them i mean that village had a road on its way you know it was being built and their lives would change forever so do we want them to stay out of touch with the world or do we want them to be in touch with the world because their lives are better isn't that an interesting debate yeah and how do they feel about that i mean i imagine none of us love change <laughs> when it arrives or most well, of us you know welcome it apprehensively they want televisions and they want to have you know they want to have warmth and heaters do they want to forever go on collecting yak poo in the summer to burn in the winter to keep them warm when mm. you can have a heater because you can have electricity Right, right. And and doesn't a road mean that you can travel and it takes away the young people who go into the cities, you know? Yeah, it's complex, I guess. It is. It is. That's globalisation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also in Ladakh, in North India, is it's that all the glaciers are melting. And, and when she got to the top of the Digar Pass, she describes in her book as it was a glacier edged with rose red primulas and when I got to the same spot there was just just gravel because it had melted so of course you're in a landlocked country and you need the glaciers so again climate change that's so interesting that you could you could see that that yeah. change yeah from exactly the same vantage point exactly as she would the have same point. yeah yeah no rose red primulas for me <laughs> Mm. she was on a yak and I had to walk because there are no rideable yaks that you can hire (laughs) (laughs) I just walked the whole way (laughs) how far was it uh that journey was about 160 miles Mm. you obviously have an encyclopedic knowledge of these women explorers and their journeys are there any others (laughs) on your bucket list coming up yes Mary Slessor have you heard of Mary Slessor I have not Mary Slessor, a Dundee in Scotland, um, a Presbyterian missionary who was sent to eastern Nigeria, which was, is now called Calabar, where she spent most of her life trying to stop the local people from killing twins. So she, she stopped infanticide. So she personally stopped, uh, saved 51 babies from dying. All of them twins. Yeah, because because in the, they thought that one was a mm. devil, and they didn't know which one. Yeah, so 
she stayed there all her life and she moved further into the areas where where the people are still fighting each other and she turned them into a much more peaceful nation. And so I'm working right now with uh, Nigerians to go and form a trail, a Mary Slessor trail, because it's so important. She's so important to people in Nigeria. There is, um, she's on their national curriculum in schools as someone who made great change. And, and that's, that's fantastic. And, I, and she grew up in the worst slums in Dundee, and I've been up and I've had a look at the area where she lived at. Yeah, there, there are lots of fantastic women out there still. To, and, and I would love to walk the Baker Trail in Uganda in the footsteps of Florence Baker, although she was with her husband, Lord Samuel Baker. She was a freed white slave whose Samuel Baker snatched from a slave auction. Where was she from? Uh, she was sort of Hungarian. Her parents had died and she was about to be sold to the Ottoman Empire, I think. And so he snatched her and ran with her. And they couldn't talk to each other, but they ended up as man and wife. And they were commissioned to go and set up forts in Egypt along the Nile to try and stop the flow of slaves. So she was part of the, the stopping of the slave trade up from Nubra up into Egypt. A great woman. And there is a, so there is a trail there now. And I want to go and walk that trail through Uganda up into Sudan. And and I want to call it the Freedom Trail, and I want to talk freedom with people because you know there is still slavery in the world. You know, in Mali, I, when when we were in Mali in eighty eight, we and we were exhausted and end up sheltering from the midday sun in a little village. And afterwards, I found out there was an encampment of freed slaves of the Tuareg that were being guarded by Algerian soldiers. So that discussion can come out through exploration, can't it? It can. And I know you're involved with some nonprofits. Is that right? Yes, I, I direct of a charity now that because I believe very much in that outdoors helps people in their mental health. And so we give mm. holidays in the outdoors to people to improve their mental well-being in England. And I've just come back from the Lake District, which is a beautiful place and got inner city people with difficult lives to dip in the river and, and to go trekking and to, to, to camp and and light fires, and, and they had a lovely time. <laughs> I mean, I, that's so good. And, and it, that's so good, and it's never felt more relevant than this oh, year, right? <laughs> absolutely. You know, like, poor people who have the worst accommodation mm. to get them out into the car. And, and it was just incredible, the effect that it had. You could just see the stress rolling off these people. And so we, we have another event happening in three weeks' time. So that's called undertheskyevents.org. That's what we do. And it's, it's a great honor to run that, to be able to run that. Yeah. That's amazing. And then I also know that you have a book that's just been released or was recently released. Yes, yes. The, the Life and Travels of Isabella Bird. I also must point out that I'm, I'm very honored to be a patron of Womankind, which is a mm. organization which helps pe- women who are the, the victims of domestic abuse. Again, very relevant after yeah, 2020 exactly exactly yeah we do all we can to to help i do all i can to help you can do you can't help everybody if you just help a few people you know it makes a big difference mm-hmm. well thank you so much i've really had a lovely time speaking to you and i genuinely um i genuinely feel like you're a massive inspiration and <laughs> <I hope> so. <laughs> no i mean honestly everything you were saying about 
the idea of just being like it's never too late to change your life and you know you can do anything you want that's it's so true and I think it's something that we don't we don't realize enough it's so easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day and just feel as if we're trapped on this one track you know oh you just have to have some vision just have vision and go out and do it but I do realize that there are a lot of people who would never be comfortable going off the beaten track, but there's nothing to stop you going for a walk in a in a, in a park or, or a forest or just going out looking at nature. I mean, that's wonderful to be able to do that. Before you go, yeah. I would love to do a few quickfire questions. Okay. Are you ready? I am, yes. Okay, what is the one thing that you believe every person should experience in their lifetime? Just getting away from humanity. As I just said just now, getting off the beaten track and just being in nature and just, you know, do a bit of forest bathing, stand there in a forest and just love every minute of it and just get, getting away from people and stress. If you could teleport anywhere for the day, where would you go and what would you do? I, I think it's going to be Timbuktu. In Mali. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go back there. It was just amazing. I think so. That was amazing. Yes. Um, What is the one thing that you never, ever travel without? Oh, gosh. You're not going to like this answer. I'm afraid it's pink lipstick. Oh, I do like that. I thought you were going to say an iPhone or something. No, no, I could could leave. Forget the iPhone. Forget the iPad. Forget all of that. I want my pink lipstick because you never know when you need to look nice for somebody you know and a lipstick makes a lot of difference it does it's a small thing but it makes a big difference it's a small thing yes (laughs) what's a destination that's not so popular with tourists that you would recommend eastern siberia but very uncomfortable to travel to but my goodness what an amazing what siberians are so amazing i mean the if they knew you were coming, anybody, they'd put on a display for you with the most wonderful costumes, the most wonderful silver filigree jewellery. And, and you wouldn't, yeah, I mean, it's just hugely worth it. If you love, if you love that idea of culture and, 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 I mean, we all get the wrong idea of Russians, but they, they just got so much soul. They're just wonderful. Yeah. Eastern Siberia. Go to, go to Yakutsk. Yes, Yakutsk. which you can only go. You can only go really in the summer because because <laughs> there's no way of getting there in the winter unless you unless you go across a frozen river. Oh, which is I love that. I've never even lights up in it. You know, I've never even heard of that place, so I'm going to have to look it up. It's cold, Yakutsk is the cold, coldest capital in the world. Oh, wow! And all and all the pipes are on the above ground because you can't get them underground because it's all permafrost, so they're all lagged and. So when you're driving along a, a road, you know, you, the pipes have come up and over it. Yeah. What? That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, what's your favourite form of transport and why? Oh, a horse and cart, I think, if I could. Oh, <laughs> that's an interesting one. Well, you know, because you're just going along at that pace and the animals are still going to come out and the birds are still singing and oh, whizzing along a highway and being stuck in traffic jams. Do we really enjoy it? I mean... No, not at all. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Rethink your trip across America, you know. <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to be just wide open roads and just me. Yeah, just wide me open there. roads. It would take you a long time in a horse and cart to go across America, wouldn't it? It would. Very pioneer vibes. Yeah. yeah. What have you been surprised to learn about yourself through, through travelling? Um, that I don't have fear. 
I never knew that before. I don't really have fear when I go in, into the jungle or I go into the unknown. And, and, I, I'm, and I'm really grateful for that because it's, it's meant that I can do this great stuff. Where does that sense of innate bravery or lack of fear come from? I don't know. I mean, I only had an, an ordinary upbringing <laughs> in the outskirts of London. You know, I don't think that anything. Oh, it's got to be reading those travel books as a young woman, like Saw Hardell's Contiki Expedition um, and all those, the Gerald Durrell's animal collecting books. I mean, I just ate them or up, you know, for breakfast. And I loved them as a very young person. I think that it came from that. Mm. If you let fear get in the way, you, you just don't have experiences, do you? You mm-hmm. can't let fear get in the way. It's very true. I think you just have to put that, just dampen it down a bit and make sure you keep moving forward. Otherwise, you won't do anything. I think, yes, totally, totally. Unless, you're, unless your life is in danger or people right. with me. And, and I was frightened by taking those people with me down. I told you the Pastaza, which is quite dangerous because I knew that no one would ever come and look for us if anything happened. I was worried for them. And I, and I did cry tears of relief when I'd gotten past the danger but I was worried for them um because some you know they're very young but I not so much with myself for myself so I I want people to be safe yeah what has been the most interesting food you've tasted while traveling well I'm vegetarian so can I talk to you about lack of food yeah I'm a fellow vegetarian so I know all about it (laughs) in Siberia there was nothing for me to eat I mean, literally, they just eat horse meat. There are no vegetables because every, it's, they can't it's grow frozen. on permafrost. So literally, I ate nothing. <laughs> they don't have, they, I guess, they don't have grains. So you couldn't have like bread no. or no milk, no there dairy. Was a bit of, yeah, it was bread. It was brought in. No, not really. Not really. Very hard. I, I went to two banquets when I was there and I just looked at the tablecloth. In fact, I pinched the guy. There was a bit of tomato garnish and I pinched that. And even when the last course came in and I thought it was chocolate mousse, and I thought, oh, great, I'll have dessert. And even that was horse meat. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, horse the lovely, I've been mm. twice now and, they, and they, they, they treated me as such an oddball because, you see, in Siberia, meat is protein and protein is very hard to get by. And I, I understand it, but they get me now. And the last time I went out to visit the, where Kate Marsden went to in a little village called Villawisk, I went back to this this little hospital where um, it's built on the uh, footprint of where her leper colony was. And the nurses and the doctors had made me some vegetable soup because they knew it. To like, Aww. we've got this very odd woman coming who doesn't eat meat. What are we going to do? And they'd made some, And I was so grateful to them for that. But I have to also admit that when I went to Siberia, I did carry a few packets of expedition food on me, <laughs> which is you mix it with hot water. That's smart. That's smart. I knew a friend's um, a friend's little brother who works. I think he's a doctor, and he he went to work in a village somewhere. I can't remember where, but it was somewhere in Africa. And after he'd done so much good work at the village that they wanted to, you know, reward him in some way and show their gratitude. And so they slaughtered a goat and made him like a <gasps> a big meal, like a big goat oh, stew or no, something. And he was like, "Oh my god, what do I do?" And he was like, I had to eat it because I couldn't say, like, I'm well, sorry, see, I'm a vegetarian. They, yeah, like, know. you know, killed their goat for me. Really? You could just put it in your pocket and say, I'm saving it for later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Finally, is there a book 
a podcast or a TV show that you'd recommend for a long journey? Oh, you're going to just you're just going to think I'm really, really odd, but I just take one DVD with me <laughs> and it's um, it's Woodstock. <laughs> you know, I can watch really? it over and over oh, and over, and over again. And because I'm a bit of an old rock chick and I I never get fed up of looking at Woodstock. And that, and you know, when I was watching that in 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 Siberia, when I when I was, I had to be rescued from this accommodation because these Siberian truck drivers were drinking so much vodka that, that I wasn't safe anymore. But I I was sitting there watching Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, I I kind of get that though. It's it's a really uplifting. It was an uplifting event, so I imagine it's quite comforting. Yeah, I actually for their fiftieth. The 50th anniversary of Woodstock, I went and visited the site in upstate Did New York you? and I I met like some people who were there and pe- like photographers who photographed the event and stuff and I wrote a story about it and I was like, oh, I'm kind of really jealous that I didn't get to attend this in real life. I've, one of my things I would love, love, love to do is I would love to travel America well, and, and England and, and visit everybody who once played at Woodstock who's still alive. I mean, you know, that's... If, if anyone's oh, yeah. listening that wants to facilitate this for me, because there are plenty of them still. I'm, and I just I just want to go and maybe take TV cameras with me and visit all the ones still alive. It would just be so interesting. Jackie, I love that for you. And I think that should be next next on your list of journeys. <laughs> <laughs> Knock on the door of Grace Slick and Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for for sharing all your adventures. And yeah, it's been so great chatting with you. I've loved it. I've absolutely loved every minute of it. Thank you so much for choosing me. And it was a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye. You can find Jackie, who spells her name J-A-C-K-I, online at jackiehill-murphy.co.uk and on Twitter, where her handle is at Jackie Murphy. Jackie's latest book, The Life and Travels of Isabella Bird, is available from all good booksellers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. You can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and subscribe so we can keep this adventure going.